All right, this morning, we are in the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to cover seven chapters this morning. See, I have this goal. I want to get you through the whole Bible. If I take a week in every chapter, chances are Jesus will come back first. So every once in a while, I got to put a few chapters together. And I'm going to do that this morning. But I'll give you an overview of each of the chapters. And then we'll put on the brakes and slow down through chapter 7 just a wee bit. Because there's something in there that I don't want to blow by too quickly. All right, so 2 Samuel, chapter 1. David mourns for Saul and Jonathan. If you've been with us the other weeks, David had been harried and chased all over the place. King Saul was trying to kill him. God said he was going to be punished. He and his sons would die. They died. And now in this chapter, David mourns for them. And right there, there's something amazing going on about David. Saul tried to kill David no less than 12 times. David was a good man and a hero and the anointed king of Israel, living in caves, running for his life, and when the guy who does this to him dies, he mourns for him. Who does that? Everybody be celebrating. They'd be dancing in the streets. David mourns for him. This just tells me what kind of man David is. He's got a heart like nobody. You know, Saul started out being a good guy, and David admired him and loved him. And then Saul crashed and burned. But David still loved him. And that never changed. Stunning the kind of heart that man had. And the only way I can understand it, or maybe help you understand it, is instead of thinking of an enemy that you hope will die, think of a family member whom you love, and maybe a child who goes prodigal for a while. You don't hate that child. Ah, serve you right. <laughs> You're like, oh God, bring him back. And you grieve for them. David was grieving for the loss of Saul. And I'm thinking in more than just one way. Seeing a good man go bad. And of course he was grieving for his son because Jonathan was David's best friend. And he died in that battle too. Something interesting happens in chapter 1. Uh, let me explain it to you. At the end of 1 Samuel, it says, and I talked to you about this last week, Saul took out his sword and he fell on it to kill himself because he didn't want to be tortured by his enemies. And then in this chapter, an Amalekite comes up to David and says, I just left the battle of Gilboa. Um, I found Saul there. Uh, he wasn't dead. He asked me to kill him, so I did. And here's some proof that, he, that I found him. And David said, I had plenty of opportunities to kill him. And I wouldn't let any of my men kill him. How did you dare stretch out your hand against the Lord's anointed? And David had that man executed for killing Saul. Well, here's the problem. Everybody says in, chap, uh, in 1 Samuel, it ends saying Saul killed himself. And then in 2 Samuel, it says the Amalekite killed him. And now people say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. You can't trust the Bible. Yeah, like the guy who wrote three verses ago didn't know what he just wrote. Come on. If that's the best you got against the Bible, you're just looking for something. You know, in the years that I've studied the Bible, and I don't mean just read it. I mean studied it. I have come across things that look like they contradict each other on a number of occasions. And I've studied them out. And in most occasions, I find the answer myself. So, oh, yeah, I get that. And every once in a while, I'll see something that I don't quite understand yet. How does that resolve with that? And I'll just say, I don't know. Maybe some archaeological discovery will help me understand. 
Like there was this huge problem for years when you count up the reigns of the kings, they never fit the timetable that the Bible gives us. And so everybody says, see, you can't trust the Bible. But then they learn things about the reigns of the kings from ancient archaeological resources. Like one king would reign with another king at the same time. It would go something like this. Hey, man, I'm 70 years old. My son's got to be the next king. He's going to become king now so he can work with me and learn kingdom, kingship, before I die, and the transition will be smooth. Two kings on the throne at the same time. Also, there's different ways of counting things. Like Taylor just said his son's going to celebrate. No, Dawson's son. They're four years. Dawson is one year, right? So he's going to celebrate his one-year birthday. How old is he after that? He's going to be called two, right? He's not two. He's only 365 days. He's not going to be two for another 365 days, but we call him two. It was the same with the kings. It depends on how you count it. And when they figured that stuff in and then they did the math, it all worked. Well, there's something similar going on here. It depends on how you translate it and look at the story. There's a couple ways you can look at it without contradiction. For example, it says he fell on his sword... And then it says, when his armor bearer saw that he had died, he fell on his sword so he could die also. So what we're getting is the armor bearer's perspective. The armor bearer saw him, thought he died. Maybe he didn't die. Maybe he, you know, you can get stabbed and live for hours. Maybe he fainted. A few hours later, he woke up and the Amalekite came by. Perfectly reasonable. Or, another reasonable explanation, what you get in 2 Samuel is what the Amalekite says. Now, did anybody bother to find out if he's an honest Amalekite or a dishonest Amalekite? See, we're getting what he said, but we're not getting what happened. We don't know if it happened that way or not. We just know that's what he said. See, you've got to understand the Bible contains the story accurately, but it doesn't mean the story is accurate. For example, the Bible's a true book, right? But Satan is quoted in the Bible, and nothing he says is true. So what he says is properly recorded, but nothing that he says is true. The Amalekite, what he said was properly recorded, but did what he say, was it true? Don't know. The Bible is trustworthy, people. And if you come across somebody who says, hey, the Bible isn't trustworthy because I found this contradiction, just ask him this one simple question. If I can get you a good, solid answer for that contradiction, would you turn from your sins and give your life to Jesus Christ? If they say yes, find it. If they say no, say, ah, so it's not really the Bible after all, is it? You just don't want to believe it, and you're looking for an excuse to make yourself feel good. That's not going to fly with God, just saying. All right, chapter 1. Chapter 2. So Saul's dead. They take one of his surviving sons and make him king of Israel. The Judahites from the other tribe take David, make him king of Judah. Now we've got two kings, King David and King Ishbosheth. Next chapter. Chapter 3, we see that David is successful and his kingdom begins to expand and it's doing well. Ishbosheth, not successful, it begins to diminish. In fact, Ishbosheth's main commander goes over to David and says, You know what? This is nuts. I'm going to support you. I'll bring all of Israel with me. So there's already a coup, like right away. And the northern, we'll call them the northern, they're about ready to disintegrate. Well, a couple other commanders of Ishbosheth's end up executing him and going to David and say, hey, it's all yours now. And they expected a, an award, some sort of reward for what they had done. 
And David said, you just murdered an innocent man and you want praise and reward from me? Here's your reward, execute them. David was a good man. See, the typical king would have been so overjoyed that these guys killed his enemy and gave him the kingdom. David wasn't about kingdom. David was about goodness and righteousness. You just murdered an innocent man. Now you're going to be executed. He established his kingdom in justice. Nobody was going to get away with anything under David's watch. David was a good man. That brings us up to chapter 5, where David is established as the king over a united Israel. And now this is, believe it or not, and we've gotten all this far in the Bible, all the way from Genesis, this is where they capture Jerusalem. This is where Jerusalem gets owned by Israel. Up to this point, it was in the hands of a group called the Jebusites. So they took it over, and David took Jerusalem, and he built a citadel called the City of David. That citadel, portions of it, have been unearthed in Israel today. And you can actually go there. I was there, and it's in an area where it's kind of like a really steep ravine with, another ravine with a hill right next to it. And you can actually stand on some of it and look at the houses and their yards all around you. And then I remembered about the story of David and Bathsheba, how David was walking around his citadel and he saw a woman bathing on her property. It doesn't mean he was some looky-loo. He was just up on his roof and you could see anything from there. She should have been a little more cautious. But at least it's cool. You can get the idea of how the Bible story came about just by standing there. So David gets Jerusalem. God is blessing. Everything is good. David says, you know what? I've built my, uh, my citadel. It's time to go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into Jerusalem. This is a high point in Jewish history. The Ark is supposed to come to its final resting place or close to it, at least in the right city. So they go and they fetch the Ark. They put it on a brand new ox cart because they figured this is God's, you know, God's ark. We're not going to put it on anything less than a brand new ox cart. They start to go to Jerusalem. They're singing. They're dancing. They're having a good time. They're praising God. And the ox cart shakes. It stumbles like it's going to tip. And some guy puts up his hand to steady the thing. And he gets struck dead on the spot. Can you imagine you're there praising God, doing a good, good deed, bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and this thing looks like it's going to fall, and the guy tries to stop it, and he gets struck dead. How would you feel? David was mad. I tell you how I'd feel. Like, what kind of God do we serve? Can't even go near this guy. He's dangerous, and he's not nice. All the guy did was try to stop the ark from tipping over. Isn't that a good thing? If that's all you knew about the story, you might not like God too much. But there's more to the story than that. And I'm going to share with you this story and then the, the more. Here's how it's written in the scripture. They set the ark of God on a new cart. Verse 5. I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, I'm going to be jumping around though. I've got the words for you up on the screen. Verse 5. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. With songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. So they were having a worshipful, wonderful, joyous atmosphere. When they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry 
because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. David got mad at God. Maybe you've gotten mad at God too. Better people than I have. So what's going on, Steve? How is this at all just or right or understandable? Well, let me tell you a few things that aren't in this part of the story. You have to go back. When God took Moses and the children of Israel out of Egypt, one of the biggest lessons that he tried to teach them, as opposed to all the other nations, were how to be a holy people and to be reverent of God. These people were worshiping idols, committing all sorts of abominable practices. They were disgusting. And God was trying to straighten them out, show them what real spirituality is like. And so he told them, certain foods are clean, certain foods are unclean. Certain behaviors are clean, other certain behaviors are unclean. This is how you dress, this is how you act, this is how you live, this is how you worship. My temple is not going to be like anybody else's temple. Here's what you're going to do. Make this, make that, make this. And the place where I meet with you, the Ark of the Covenant will be sacred. Don't touch it. Don't even approach it without a sacrifice once a year and only the high priest. The rest of the time it stays behind a curtain. The people had to learn about holiness and reverence and how nasty sin is. That curtain represented the barrier between us and God. We couldn't approach the ark because we're sinful. God is holy. And the lesson was there's something keeping us from having a full and complete relationship with God. That, by the way, is fulfilled later in Jesus. And then the curtain in the temple is ripped open when he rises from the dead. So here's what God told them about the ark in Numbers chapter 4. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to come to do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. The Kohathites were a group of Levites. So there was a group of priestly ministers who were only allowed to touch the holy things. Of them, the Kohathites were the only ones allowed to touch the ark. So here we go. God says, don't go near it. Don't even touch it. Only these priests and only these priests are these priests, and they can't even touch it. So who's this guy Uzzah? touching the ark. And why did they put it on an ox cart? They are not treating this thing the way God told them to treat it at all. This thing represents God on earth and they're throwing it in the back of an ox cart. God specifically told them how to touch it. Listen to this. Um, well, before I read that, let me tell you a little something more. I showed you the picture. He told them that they weren't allowed to touch it. They had to put these poles in it and then carry the pole so they never touch the ark. And when they put the ark in the holy place and the curtains were closed, the poles actually stuck out. They weren't allowed to take the poles out again. They had to stay there forever. He gave them very specific commands. Why didn't they honor them? I don't know. I don't know why. Could have been ignorance. But I think somebody's head's got to roll. Somebody's got to take the fall. Well, Uzzah, unfortunately, was the guy. David was mad. And he left the ark where it was and went home. 
And then three months passed, and during those three months, word came to him that the family that was hosting the ark was being tremendously blessed. So David said, well, maybe I got this all wrong. Did a little research, came back to get the ark again. Listen to what he says. He chews out the Levites. He blames them. He said to them, you're the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because of you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. And guess what? It was a joyous day. They had the singing again, they had the dancing again, just like the first day, and nobody got hurt. Fact, they learned the lesson of reverence, let me tell you, because every few feet they stopped and offered a sacrifice and sang songs and prayed. Then they moved a few more feet, did the same thing, till they got it into Jerusalem. They learned, you don't mess with God. They learned it. They had to learn it the hard way. Good times. David is singing and dancing and... I just wish I wasn't so Western, I'd show you how he did it, but <laughs> I can't dance, and that's so sad. But David could. He was dancing before the Lord, having a good old time. But one of his wives was looking out the window at him, going like this, what an idiot. Playing the fool, what a shame. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. 2 Samuel 6, David danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of the trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, that's a girl's name here, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Okay. David fell in love with Michael. She fell in love with him. She even risked her life to save him once in the early chapters. When Saul went after David and David fled for his life, he moved away for a few years. Saul took his wife, Michael, and gave her to another man. Now she's married to two men. Obviously, David doesn't count anymore because he's gone. Well, this new guy falls in love with her. David's coming back to Jerusalem, and he says, I want my wife back. And they take her from him. This is all behind the scenes. So you know this woman is not a happy woman right now. Probably she's upset. She probably settled into her new life. Probably fell in love with the new guy all over again. Now they take her away. Whatever's going on, she's not a happy camper. And the Bible says that indirectly by telling us what she does. And maybe by these words. Michael, daughter of Saul. Why does this? they have to throw Saul's name in on there. We know who Michael is. And it's not just once, but twice she's called Michael, daughter of Saul. So maybe it's to show us that she's like falling after her old man. Maybe it's insulting. I don't know. So she's all upset at David, but David's happy. David's filled with joy. It's a day of joy and victory. And he comes home so happy. He wants to bless his family. And he sees Michael's face. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. You've been there. 
When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter Saul, came out to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do, disrobing, exposing himself. You know, they wore robes back in those days. David was dancing around. Maybe he showed a little something he shouldn't have shown. I don't know. Maybe she's just saying that because she despised him and was putting him down. David didn't get all embarrassed. Here's what David said. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house. And when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in honor. David said, I was praising God, and you got a problem with that because it was a little undignified? I'll get even more undignified. I want there to be a Christian band called Undignified. You know what I'm saying? Hey, they let loose. They were praising God, having a good old time. You want undignified? I wasn't dancing for you anyway. I was dancing for the Lord, and he's seen it all. He, he didn't care what she had to say. And then that last verse is really, it's a hard verse in, in a heart. Verse 23, Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Why? One of two reasons and only one of two reasons. Because God cursed her and closed up her womb or because David wouldn't go near her. Which one do you want? Both of them really suck. That ruined their relationship, I'm thinking. That's my take on it, that that just ruined their relationship from there on out. Sad, sad, sad. That's chapters 1 through 6, chapter 7. David is living in his citadel. It's a nice palace. And he realizes, I live in this great palace, and God's ark is in a tent. That's where we commune with God. That's God's house. That's not a house. That's no good. God deserves better than what I got. I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build him a temple. So he goes to the prophet Nathan, first time Nathan's mentioned in the Bible, and Nathan says, hey, man, whatever's on your heart, do it. God says, not so fast to Nathan. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. In verse 5, God tells Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Verse 11, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David says, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, No, you're not. I'm going to build you one. That's exactly what happened. You said David already had a house, Steve. Oh, yeah, but God wasn't talking about a house in the way you and I use the word, but in the way they use the word. A house was a family. It was a dynasty. God said, I'm going to establish your tribe like it ain't never been seen before. You're going to build me a house? Oh, no. I'm going to build you a house. It's so God-like. God, let me give you something. And God's like, no, thanks. Let me give you something. God, let me give you 10%. God says, let me give you 110%. God gives us everything good we have. And if we deign to tithe, he floods the blessings on us. Every time we try to do something for God, 
Don't get me wrong, he appreciates it, but he wants to do something better for us. It's so parent-like, isn't it? That's how we feel with our kids. Oh, Dad, let me do this for you. Thanks. But no, no, let, no, no, let me do it for you and your kids. God said, um, I will establish a house for you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God, I want to build you a house. No, I'm going to build you a house. In fact, for the rest of eternity, a descendant of yours will be the only rightful king of Israel. Wow. Wow. It's funny. When people die, they want to leave something behind. They want people to speak well of them. They want to be remembered. That's never changed. Back in those days, uh, it was even more important. And look what God offered David. An eternal dynasty. Who else has got that? Think about it. An eternal dynasty. You might be thinking, well, David's dead. It didn't do him any good. David's not dead. David is living in heaven right now. He's as more alive than you or I are. He's not here now, lucky him. But he will be coming back. And Jerusalem will again have a king on the throne. And it's going to be a descendant of David's. In fact, Isaiah chapter 9, as well as other places, show us exactly how God chose to fulfill this promise through David. You probably know half of this. Listen. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. This son is going to rule. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. This child will be called the Mighty God, the Father of Eternity, and the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, God told David, you're going to have a house. So how do you have a king on the throne of Israel forever? Easy. You make sure the Messiah gets born a descendant of David. And then the Messiah, who is king of Israel forever, will carry on David's dynasty forever. So Jesus, listen, the end of the Old Testament, the way the Jewish Bible lays it out, ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Davidic line. Look at how the New Testament starts. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The Old Testament, God says, David, I'm going to do this for you. The beginning of the New Testament, it says, David, I am doing this for you right now. Right there is enough to give me goosebumps. But it doesn't end there. The gift of God is the gift that keeps on giving. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would like God to build you a house? Why aren't your hands up? <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you again. How many of you would like God to build you a house? I do. <laughs> yeah, of course. This is awesome. What a blessing. David got it. And he got it through the eternal Messiah, right? So here's the Messiah who fulfills the promise. Listen to what he says to his disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. He's still building houses. And he's building them for you. And I will go and prepare a place for you. And I will come back and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Whoa! He not only gives an eternal house to David, we all get one. How cool is that? All because one good man with a big heart said, God, I want to give you a house. Give something to God. Watch what he'll do with it. You're like, man, take out my wallet now. You can go to your wallet later. How about your heart? How about your energy, your time? How about your passion and your commitment? You know, really? Just to get it down to one thing, God only wants one thing from you, and that's your heart. That's all he wants is your love. And look what he can do with it. So, Jesus said, hey, I'm going to build a place for you. And the disciples said, uh, where are you going? We don't even know what you're talking about. These guys weren't the sharpest tools in the shed. I can say that because I have 2,000 years of studying to look back through in the Holy Spirit and all that, which they didn't have. So, so he said, ha, we don't know what you're talking about. Jesus said, where I go, you do know. And the way you also know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. I'm building you a mansion. How do we get to it, Lord? I'll take you there. He's the way. He's the only way to that heavenly mansion. God can build you a house too. For most of you, he's already building it. It might be sitting there right now. The grass is being watered, waiting for you. Some of you may have not yet made a decision. Maybe you don't want to live in heaven. I don't know why. The alternative is rather grim. Why not get a home in heaven? Live with God forever. He only wants one thing in return. Your heart. Technically, it goes down this way. By believing in Jesus, by trusting him, you know, committing yourself to him, trusting that he died for your sins and rose again. And we prove that we trust him and we committed to him by turning our back on our sin and our face towards him. We reject sin, we accept Jesus. If you're willing to become his follower, he will build you a house. If you have not made that commitment, I'd encourage you with all my heart, Please make that commitment. Why wouldn't you? Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for sending us Jesus and for showing us how loving you are. David offered you a house and you decided to build millions of houses for everybody with the heart of David. Oh Lord, thank you so much. And God, I very much look forward to my mansion. But I don't want to go up there until we bring as many people with us as possible. So please, Lord, touch hearts. Do what you can through me, through us, to help others come to the place where they realize they can have an eternal relationship with you too. Lord, thank you so much. Please give us the heart of David. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.